So good for you all for being here on a three-day weekend, Martin Luther King Jr. weekend. And I give you extra credit for that. Did you know that? It's within. It's in the book of order. I promise. The, extra, the pastor can give extra credit for you. So if those of you who came on New Year's Day, Christmas Day, now three-day weekend, you're racking it up. You're doing really good. And you're going to be so glad you came today because I'm going to do something I've never done before. We're going to read an entire book of the Bible. So I hope you don't have any plans. I, I'm serious. We're going to read all of Philemon. Have you ever heard a sermon on Philemon before? I've never given a sermon on Philemon before. Shortest book in the New Testament. So, shortest one of Paul's letters. Um, if you can find it. By the way, if you're wondering how they got ordered, all of Paul, the, the letters that we assume were written by Paul, or the early church thought was written by Paul, were organized by, not by the order they were written in in the New Testament, by, but from longest to shortest. So you just keep moving through Paul's letters until you come to Philemon, which is going to be right before Hebrews. And uh, this is going to be something that, like I said, I haven't done before. I haven't preached on this before. But I felt like I needed to today. Before we're in transition between series... Um, this has been an extremely difficult year in terms of race relations in this country, hasn't it? I mean, there's been probably more difficult years, I understand that. But it, it's been difficult. There's been a lot of things coming up and happening that um, maybe they just weren't talked about before, but they're out in the open, people are talking about them. And I felt like this was important for me for this year, on this weekend, when we rem- remember the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King to spend a moment talking about this important issue of our relationships with others and how the gospel impacts those. I feel like it's also important in part because when I did youth ministry, I talked about this a lot. People, and many people know, of course, who Martin Luther King Jr. was. Most people don't realize that he was named after one of the great reformers, Martin Luther who started the, uh, who's sort of the founder of the Lutheran Church unintentionally, but also one of our parents in the faith as Reformed Presbyterians. Um, and he was first and foremost a reverend, and that always gets left off his name. So when he would write his name, it was the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. That was important because his motivation for the things he did and the way he did them came out of his belief as a pastor. And from scripture. So I have two goals today because obviously there's probably a few of you whose insides are screaming, I should run out the door right now before we get into the sermon. Um, I want to just, I want to try to reassure you on a couple things. I want to let you know my goals for this sermon. First of all, my goal is to just share a little bit of my personal journey on these issues with you. So these are, this is my story. This is not your story. This is how I feel God has worked with me on this. And I hope that some of that will be valuable to you. Secondly, I do want to, using Philemon, I would like all of us to consider what our role as Christians should be going forward in these issues without me coercing you to take on my conclusions. That's my goal for today, is to, to present some ideas and to help you reflect on what our role as Christians should be, as people of God should be, going forward, without me saying, this is what you need to do and how you need to do it. And that's actually what Paul does in this letter to Philemon, which is a valuable letter that we have in Scripture that, like I said, it's, it's not long. It's going to be hard to do a sermon series on Philemon. So unless you're following the lectionary, it probably doesn't come up very often. 
So let me just give you background as we get into um, reading this. This was a letter written by Paul when he was in prison. We think it was probably written right alongside with one of the letters from the Corinthians. We have two Corinthian letters in in our Bible, but we think there were three. If you read the letters closely, you'll see there's another one. So there's debate about whether they're included in 1st or 2nd Corinthians and all that. But the point is, with one of the letters to the Corinthian church, this letter was sent with it. And it was written to a man named Philemon, who was the owner of a slave, Onesimus. And the slave was with Paul. So Paul is writing on his behalf. Now, there's a lot of theories on this, but I'll just tell you the, the most widely believed from as we read this letter is that the slave had probably done something wrong and legally wrong or or enough to offend his master okay so here's what um, Paul says Paul a prisoner of Christ Jesus and Timothy our brother to Philemon our dear friend and co-worker to Aphia our sister to Archippus our fellow soldier and to the church in your house grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. When I remember you in my prayers, I always thank God because I hear of your love for all the saints and your faith toward the Lord Jesus. I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective and you perceive all the good that we may do for Christ. I have indeed received much joy and encouragement from your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, my brother. For this reason... Though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do your duty, yet I would rather appeal to you on the basis of love. And I, Paul, do this as an old man, and now also as a prisoner of Jesus Christ, of Christ Jesus. I'm appealing to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I have become during my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful both to you and to me. I am sending him, that is my own heart, back to you. I wanted to keep him with me so that he might be of service to me in your place during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your good deed might be voluntary and not something forced. Perhaps this is the reason he was separated from you for a while, so that you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both the flesh, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. This next statement is so powerful. If he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. So, of course, in the original letter, Paul usually had someone scribing, so we can't see that. But that part was likely written in Paul's own handwriting. I will repay it. I say nothing about your owning, owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, let me have this benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I am writing to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. One more thing, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping through your prayers to be restored to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is the word of the Lord.
Thanks be to God. And there you go. Now you can say you were at a church service where the pastor read an entire book of the Bible and you survived. <laughs> Letter to Philemon. This letter, of course, is interesting in a number of levels, but one of them is that because it's part of our canon, it's part of our scriptures. This letter, unlike the others, with the exception of perhaps Timothy and some of the Titus, I mean, there's some pastoral letters that were written to a particular person, but were also, if you read the letters, you get the idea they were written to more than one person, right? Now, this one, you, you do hear at the beginning, Paul's addressing a few people to the church in his house. So it's a letter written to Philemon, but he wants it to also be read publicly in front of others. So you can see Paul's wisdom in this. He doesn't want this to be a secret. But beyond that, it becomes part of our gospel. The Holy Spirit intended the church to maintain this letter for us for all time. To be a teaching tool for us, for the Spirit to continue to work in us. Paul, when he writes this letter, he doesn't choose to use his apostolic authority, is what he talks about, his right as an apostle of the church to a fellow church leader. He could say, this is what you have to do. He says, I'm not going to do that. I want your response to this letter to be voluntary. Paul is looking for reconciliation. It's a word we throw around. But it's an important word because it's the word that gets used to describe what happened to us through Christ Jesus with God our Father. That we were reconciled. That relationship was made right again. It was restored. And Paul is looking for a similar thing to happen between Onesimus, this slave, this servant, and Philemon, his master. The way Paul goes about doing this is brilliant. Um, first of all, like I said, he doesn't use his apostolic authority. And then secondly, uh, there's that important piece of the letter where he says, just so you can't hold anything against him, I want you to know that I am taking on anything he owes you. Now, implied within that, of course, is not just any financial debt that might be owed. Because of that line, some people theorize that maybe Onesimus stole something. We don't know what happened. But... They, and Onesimus was a, not property in the sense of the way slaves in this country were treated as property. That was not how it worked in the Roman Empire. But he was not a free man either. So anything that uh, may have, I mean, just a time away from his master would have been a debt that was owed, I guess is what I'm trying to get at here. And Paul is saying, if there's any, implying there, if there's any punishment that is due him, I'm taking that too. I'm taking this all on his behalf. So that's pretty clever, but then he goes on, and there's all these little comments through the letter. You probably picked up on some of those. First of all, he starts off by thanking Onesimus for being such a good man in the church. Tells him he prays for him, and he's thankful for the way the gospel has been working through him. And then he says, I'm going to appeal to you on behalf of love. This powerful word that has to do with what God did through Jesus Christ, right? This love that is a type of love that is sacrificial, not just a feeling, right? And then he goes on and he's, he's talking about how, you know, maybe he was separated for you for a while for this very purpose, that he could be returned to you, not as a servant, but as a brother. Because what happened was while, and as near as we can tell, is while this slave 
was gone and came in contact with Paul. Was he arrested? We don't know what happened. Somehow he becomes acquainted with Paul in prison. He receives the gospel. He becomes born again. He becomes a follower, a disciple of Jesus. And so Paul's saying, you know, maybe this was God's plan. So that's one of the ways he's really clever in how he's talking about this. And then he also says, you know, I'm not going to demand anything from you, even though you owe your very life to me. (laughs) Did you pick up on that part? And he says, I also know that you will do even more than I say. Even more than I'm asking you're going to do because you are such a faithful man. And then lastly, he of course says, and I don't have any reason to doubt that Paul believed this might happen, but he says, by the way, why don't you get your guest room ready? Because I'm going to come and visit. So it's Paul's way of saying, of course, in in those times, it wasn't going to be, I'm going to pick up the phone, I'm going to send you an email, see how things are going. He's saying, I'm going to find out how this all turns out. Because I would like to come visit you. So why don't you get your guest room ready? Of course, he's in prison. Paul doesn't ever make it out of prison, so we don't have any reason to believe that he ever made that that visit. As I come into this this letter and I think about these things, um, you know, the time when this was written, this was part of every society. There were servants, there were slaves, there were sometimes different classes, and there were masters and rulers and owners. And this is how societies worked. And Paul is, is not um, an abolitionist, as we would think of that. He's not writing here and other places and saying that we should demolish and destroy slavery, although some things come pretty close to that. But the things he is saying are radical for this time, and for now, I would say. Because he's saying that what happens because of the gospel is that there's a new kind of relationship formed that is no longer based on the relationships that society says should happen. He does write, and this letter probably exemplifies this more than any other point, this powerful verse that Paul writes in Galatians 3.28 when he says, because of the gospel, there is no longer Jew or Greek, no longer slave or free, no longer male or female, for all are one in Jesus Christ. That statement is no less powerful today as it was when Paul penned it. And this letter is an example of how that works out in the practical life. Because there's a, there's a societal relationship that's all bound up in laws in the Roman Empire between this master and the slave. And Paul says, I'm sending him back to you as your servant. But more than that, now is a brother in Christ. Now, there's other instances of Paul dealing with some of these difficult issues, and not just with slaves and masters, but there's a whole issue of the ethnic relationships between Jews and Gentiles. It's both a religious and an ethnic problem, because for the Jewish people, they have this this identity that is born in a biological community. But they also have this identity that is larger, that is their religious identity. But they, they, they're together. They're not, it, they don't separate those apart. And Paul comes out of that identity. And most of the early church leaders come out of that identity. And all of a sudden, you have all these Roman Gentiles and others who are coming to become followers of Jesus. And they bring all of their cultural practices and baggage with them. And there's this whole difficult question of how do we move, move forward in this? 
I mean, just from a practical issue, when you get together in the synagogue, the men and the women don't sit together. So how are you going to do that when it's not just men and women, but now it's men and women together and Jews and Gentiles together and people from this country and people from this country. And it's a difficult issue. And Paul has to wrestle with this. So we see, um, you know, Peter, he had this powerful moment where he was on top of a roof waiting for lunch. And the Holy Spirit gives him these visions of these, all these unclean animals that a Jewish man would eat. And they're descending down. And, and, the, and there's a voice that says, take and eat. And Peter's going, I would never eat that stuff, right? And, and then it happens three times. And, and, and God says, what I've declared clean, you, know, don't, you can't say is unclean. And all of a sudden there's a knock on the door. And there's a Gentile there who says, my uh, master would like you to come visit him. His name's Cornelius. And the, the dream told him to go. The vision told him to go with that man. So he does. He goes. And he shows up in this Gentile's house. This is early on in the church. He shows up in the Gentile's house. And this man, Cornelius, who's a, who's a, a soldier. He's got all these people gathered. And he says, here we are. God told me to send for you. Now, what do you have to say? <laughs> and so Peter, he shares the gospel with him. And then... So God makes it very clear the Holy Spirit descends upon some of them. And so Peter goes back and reports to the other apostles what happens. Okay? But Paul tells us that later, even after this happened with Peter, later he has to call Peter out. Because Peter is in another place and he's there and Paul is going there. And Peter is hanging out and eating with all the Gentiles until a very powerful group of uh, church leaders come from Jerusalem who are connected with James, Jesus' brother. They come and they're good Jewish boys. And all of a sudden, Peter won't eat with the Gentiles anymore. And, and so, I mean, Paul, yeah, Peter won't. And so Paul says, he tells us in Acts, he had to actually call Peter out on that and say, what are you doing? And there's this whole section you can read about it in, in Acts 10. Or no, Acts 10 was the Peter and Cornelius. Sorry, Galatians 2. You can read about that. And then in Acts 15, we have the first church council, and it was on this issue. How do we reconcile these relationships between the Jews and the Gentiles? How do we make this work in the church? So this, I, I would argue, I lay all this out before you to say, the things that we wrestle with today in terms of cultural and ethnic issues in this country and others, these are not new issues for the church. The letter of Philemon is evidence that there's a, a desire by God to have relationships changed in a dramatic way in light of the gospel. Now, I told you I was going to share a little bit about, about my story. Um, I, I grew up, and you know, looking back, I now realize that, like many of us, you know, I was born into a family that had certain ideas about race and race relations. I remember being with my extended family and being teased as a child about kissing um, African-American girls. But that wasn't the word that was used. It was the N-word. And this became an ongoing joke because it was like the, the implications of child I picked up very clearly. They're dirty. You wouldn't touch them. You wouldn't be around them, right? And so that was part of my family. And I was born into that. My cultural upbringing, I was raised in Bend, Oregon. Bend, Oregon was a little logging town when I was growing up. And there, were not, there was not a whole lot of racial diversity in my town, in my schools. Um, I didn't have contact with people from different backgrounds, like someone maybe growing up in Seattle would. That was just how I was raised. 
But I still had this belief and this understanding that racism in my life and in the life of uh, my culture was in the past. That it was behind us. That's at least with the story I was hearing in school as I was learning about this. But then there were some local events that I still remember being very powerful that, that, that woke me up to the idea that this hasn't gone away. We had a baseball team that I used to like to go watch. It was a semi-pro team, kind of like the Aqua Sox, but I think they were single A, so they're down even a level below that. And so we would go watch them, but they were a farm team for, you know, not for the Mariners. I can't remember which professional team at the time that's changed. But they were taking a trip down, a bus trip down to California, and this was in the 90s, and, or maybe late 80s. They were going down to California, and they stopped at Weed, Weed, Oregon, or Weed, California. Is it Weed, Oregon, or California? California. California. Okay, so it's right where Highway 97 and I-5 come together. And they stopped at a restaurant there, and it ended up making the news because the restaurant owner refused to serve them because they had black players on their team. And I, that, when I heard that, I thought, this can't be right. Like, that stuff doesn't happen anymore, does it? And then I remember uh, another time when um, Evander Holyfield came to visit Ben. Do you remember him? Boxer? Famous guy? And we have, there's this, uh, in Ben, Oregon, there's this company that makes these very high-end motorhomes called Beaver Coaches. And he was coming to get a custom-made Beaver Coaches motorhome, brand new, right? So he picks it up, and he's driving down Highway 97, and not long after that, immediately, he gets stopped. And he not only gets stopped, but he gets detained for quite a long period of time. And, you know, I don't never, you know, you can't figure out all the details. I wasn't there. But the, the bottom line was the narrative that I began hearing and that was told, I was told was, look, the police officer was doing the right thing because it's pretty suspicious to see a black man driving through our community in a really expensive motorhome. You know, most police officers would want to stop him. And so I just, it, it made me think about that. You know, I thought, and because the only reason it made the news, you understand, is because it was Evander Holyfield. <laughs> Otherwise, it, we wouldn't have heard about it. And it brought, I mean, it, it created some good discussion. And then I also remember in high school, we had one African-American on our high school football team. And he was a great player. And he was our punt returner. And I remember um, very vividly, being in Hermiston, Oregon, we would play Hermiston and Lapine and Pendleton and Prineville. And every place we went to, it was not uncommon to hear all kinds of racial slurs coming from the parents on the sidelines towards him. So that was my first, you know, kind of eye-opening to, to what his life might be like. And then um, we, were, we were in um, Pendleton, and he was receiving a punt, and he called for a fair, fair catch. And there was a guy probably 15 yards away from him. He caught the ball, and he starts to walk off, and this guy just nails him. Which was bad enough, right? I mean, because that's in football, that's a pretty big penalty usually. Okay, well, they didn't call unsportsmanlike. I mean, the kid should have been ejected from the game. They threw the flag because he called a fair catch, and so that was the penalty. But the worst part was hearing how loud the home fans were cheering for that hit. And it just, you know, I mean, it just made me realize, wow, there's this whole world. So those were some of my local experiences that woke me up to, well, I might think this is all in the past. It's not in the past. For everybody. And then there were three events later that really shook me to the core. So I want to tell you something about the Holy Spirit. <laughs> you may know this already, okay? But the Holy Spirit doesn't wait to speak to us when we're in church. The Holy Spirit doesn't wait to speak to us when we're in prayer. So there were three times when the Holy Spirit just totally blindsided and surprised me because I was in settings that I didn't expect to hear from God. And God spoke to me. 
Um, the first one was when I was in school, in high school, and we had, um, I had a really close friend, her name was Nori, and the funny thing was, I had no idea she was Japanese. You would think the name would be enough, right? And her skin color and her eyes and anything else would have told me, but I just didn't see it, I didn't know it, I've been going to school with her forever, until the day her father came in and told about the time when he and his family were in the internment camps during World War II for Japanese Americans. And as I was listening to this, I remember the first thing I thought was, this can't be right. I've been studying history, you know, since I was a early, young kid. I've never heard this story. I remember looking at my teacher going, are you going to correct this? I mean, what is this about? I was shocked. I had never heard these stories. Now, those of you who know about that know that many people consider that a dark time in our history. But there's also many who say, you know, that was because of what was happening in the world and the way things were going on. That just wasn't that unusual, whatever. I just want to say for me... That kind of shook me because I didn't think the place I lived would ever do something like that, even in the past during World War II. And then it wasn't long after that, we had a, in another class in school, we had a visit by a tribal elder from the Warm Springs Reservation. That's a collection of tribes. It's the largest reservation on the West Coast. It's in the central and northern part of Oregon. And he came, and the first thing he did was he did a welcoming for us being on, uh, on behalf of the natives for being on their land. And of course that was offensive on many levels because we're, I'm thinking this isn't your land. You know, how can you do that? And so he began, began to tell his story. And I remember a lot of anger, both in me and others, you know, thinking how dare he say all of these things that he was saying. But he also said a lot of things that I didn't know about that were present day things that they were experiencing that were surprising to me and, and began me talking with others. So both of those things, here's what happened. In both of those things, I wanted so desperately to have a very hard heart. But what happens with the Holy Spirit is you can't then go and say, you know, create in me a clean heart, oh God, except for that, leave that over there. You know, I don't want to think about that and talk about that. And God just wouldn't let these things go in me. And the third one was probably the biggest I was in college, I was a firefighter for the Forest Service, and um, I was working down seasonally in the summer, and they said, we're having mandatory sensitivity training. You know, and everyone's just like, oh gosh, government work, here we go, right? And no one's expecting anything good out of it, but we we're all excited because we, we do hard physical work. We're like, hey, we get paid to go sit in the class for a day. This is great, you know? They'll have snacks there, the whole thing. We'll be an air-conditioned room. I mean, come on. This is, this is fine. So we go to the sensitivity training, and I still don't remember the film that, they, that was put on. It wasn't a government person who came and did it. And it was a film about um, the lives and the relationships of some of the um, uh, Mexican immigrants down in Southern California in the agricultural work. Something that I think has become more, people become more aware of, the number of migrants who move along with the fields and do field work and live basically homeless, right? And they move, they start in the south and they move forward in the country until they go back at the end of the season. Um, but there, and I can't even tell you any of the details other than this, this one thing happened. And that was that I was sitting there and I was thinking, you know, I'm in my Forest Service firefighter mode. I'm not in my um, college theology mode. I, you know, in college, we would pray in class. We would sing a hymn. 
we would talk about God. We'd open the Bible. I'm sitting in a Forest Service sensitivity training with all these tough guys who swear like crazy. And I'm thinking, I'm just in a different, I've clicked over to this mode, right? And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit just hit me. And we're talking about this, and I'm realizing this very powerful thing in my life, which was this. And I mentioned this earlier. I had never considered myself a racist. All these things had happened. I had never considered myself a racist of any kind. But I realized that what I was doing was I was refusing to see that other people experienced life differently than I did. I was saying, I'm colorblind. I don't see any of that. We, we're all the same. We're all equal in Christ. I would agree with the Apostle Paul. But what the Holy Spirit told me was, you're actually doing it by not even paying attention or listening. And broke my heart. So I said, the problem with the Holy Spirit is the problem, Holy Spirit doesn't wait for church to do these things. So here I am in this train trying to be the tough guy and my heart is breaking because I'm seeing some of the sin in myself. Psalm 51, we sang, sang from Psalm 51 today. Psalm 51, 17 says, The sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart of God you will not despise. That was written by King David. King David, of any people, of anyone at that time, had the right when that prophet came and said, I'm coming from God. And I'm basically confronting you on the sinful, adulterous relationship you've had with Bathsheba. And not only that, the murder of her husband. King David had all the power to just make it go away. And his response instead was to have a broken and contrite heart before God. So Psalm 51 is is his song to God about that. The sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit. And a broken and contrite heart. So as I mentioned to you, my goals today, I should have said my goal is not to make anyone feel guilty. My goal is to challenge us. You know, if you live here, if you live in Stanwood and Camino Island, um, we obviously confront some of these racial issues less than if we were to, say, live in Chicago or downtown Seattle or something like that. I understand that. But that doesn't mean they don't exist. And so I, I just continue to ask this question with God, with the Holy Spirit, and I challenge you to ask it. You know, God, will you open my eyes and break my heart for the things that you care for? That doesn't mean I'm going to have the answers. It doesn't mean that I'm instantly going to change into this kind of person who just treats everybody exactly wonderfully. But it means I want God to do the work. I want it to be God's work. I don't want it to be my work. And if it's a possibility that God wants to convict me on something, then I'm okay with that. And I tell God that. I say, God, just go ahead and do it. I'm open to that. Will you be open to the possibility that there's more God wants to teach you in this area, that you haven't figured it all out just yet? Will you be willing to repent if God asks and it's necessary? Will you be willing to be part of reconciliation? Because the one thing I can say for certainty when it comes to racial relationships and all the problems that that creates or international relationships or cultural relationships, the one thing I can say with certainty from Scripture and we see in Philemon is that God desires reconciliation. 
And if you don't believe it, every month, the beginning of the month, we sit, well, we don't, you sit, <laughs> I stand and we, we serve from this table to the Lord's table. And that table also symbolizes that one day there will be a great feast and a great table set out for all of those who call Jesus Christ Lord and Savior. And guess what? That's going to be a big, ethnically diverse party. <laughs> Isn't it? Let's pray. God, first of all, I just want to thank you for those who have had the courage to speak up in these areas over the years because your spirit has called them to do that. I think of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. I think of many others whose names probably never make any special books or get a holiday. But Lord, you motivated them and you used them. God, I don't know all that you have in store for us, but I do believe you want us to be a people of reconciliation. So, Lord, however we move forward in that, I ask that you would help us. I feel, God, that it's so important for us right now to pray for the safety of all of our law enforcement officers who face these questions day in and day out. They don't have a choice. It's thrust upon them. So I pray for a lot of wisdom and grace and strength and protection for them. And Lord, for those whose lives are marked by dealing with these conflicts every single day in their communities, God, I ask that you would bring healing. We pray this, we pray this all in Jesus' name.